we'd like to thank you, our valued listeners, for your interest and support over the past 18-odd months. What was initially FX Radio has grown exponentially to include not just our podcasts in FX Medicine Podcast Central on iTunes, but we'd like to also introduce the recently launched FX Medicine website. This is our reservoir of resources, research and educational content for complementary medicine. Come and be a part of the community at fxmedicine.com.au. Hi, this is Stacey, the Baby Maker Roberts, and I would love for you to join me in February, our seminar, Going From Unexplained to Pregnant. This seminar will help you assist more of your patients by providing you with practical, clinically proven advice on all aspects of unexplained fertility issues, and I can't wait to share it with you. I look forward to seeing you in February, and to register for this event, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the education tab. See you there. Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line all the way from America today is Dr. Lise Alshler. Now, Lise is a naturopathic doctor with board certification in naturopathic oncology and has been practicing since 1994. She received her bachelor's degree from Brown University in medical anthropology and her doctorate of naturopathic medicine from the esteemed Bastyr University where she also completed her residency. She maintains a naturopathic oncology practice out of naturopathic specialists based in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Lee's works as an independent consultant in the area of practitioner and consumer health education. She's the executive director of the TAP Integrative, a non-profit educational resource for integrative practitioners. Dr. Alshler is the co-author of the fantastic book, The Definitive Guide to Cancer and The Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer which is specifically designed for patients. She co-created 5tothriveplan.com and co-hosts a radio show, 5 to Thrive, live on the Cancer Support Network about living more healthfully in the face of cancer. She is currently president of the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians and you can learn about more about that at drlees.net. The American Association of Naturopathic Physicians recognised Dr. Alchler in 2014 as Physician of the Year, and Lees also received an honorary degree from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine and the Joseph Pozzorno Founders Award from the Bastyr University in the same year. That is quite a bio, and so proud of your achievements, Lees. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And I so should delighted to be talking with you. <laughs> and I should have added that I'm I'm so proud to count you amongst my friends. I'm very honoured. Absolutely. So, Lise, today we're going to be talking about something that goes hand in hand with your expertise in cancer support, um, but it also affects many other people in the community, and that's anxiety. So, I guess first, can you take our listeners through the prevalence of anxiety? Just how common is this condition? Anxiety is actually amazingly common. So, 
best guess, and this comes from studies, and the reason I say guess, I'll explain in a moment, but best best estimate is that about one quarter of the population experiences anxiety on a regular recurrent basis. Mm-hmm. Um, women are about two to three times more likely to experience generalized anxiety than men are, so oh. it's a bit more common in women, which may have a hormonal connection. Um, and I say guess because anxiety is actually a very difficult condition to assess the prevalence for because part of being anxious is a bit of a disassociated state. So when people are anxious, one of the effects of anxiety is they they become somewhat disassociated from their kind of full emotional presence Mm. and therefore are very likely to under-report. It's also got a lot of stigma attached to it. So people are also um, more prone to under-report. So I would suggest that a quarter of the population is conservative, and I would probably, just from my experience and talking with people and um, <clears throat> patients and practitioners alike, I would probably put that at more like 50%. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree with you there. <laughs> I mean, see, the whole point um, for me about people reporting things like depression, anxiety is who, and I'm I'm not being macho about this, but let's say, you know, a male, because I'm a male, so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. What male is going to say, yep, absolutely, I have anxiety to, to uh, you know, uh, as the answer to a question, hey, how are you going today? It's not something that you readily want to sort of go into a negative unless you're really, you know, in need of help. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think that's, that also could explain why there's fewer men that show up in these surveys. Um, you know, and I think that part of that is because anxiety is portrayed, I think, in some ways as a failure for us to cope with our lives. And that's kind of worn as a, a burden, something a failure that, that we have. And, you know, there's really nothing that's farther from the truth. I mean, first of all, let's face it, the world is rather anxiety producing. There's so much going on. And just just with the advent of the internet, we're all aware of bad news all the time, instantaneously. So there's a lot of stimulus that's coming into our brains that needs to get processed and affect our sense of safety in the world, which is really at the root of anxiety. Mm. So this is an anxiety provoking world. And if we didn't feel some anxiety about it, I think there's something a little perhaps wrong with us. And there's also a lot of factors that uh, have increased our susceptibility to feeling anxious that range from lifestyle factors, sleep, diet, exercise, and even certain nutrient deficiencies and some brain issues that um, are affected by all those things too. So it's not something people should be ashamed of experiencing. I think it's a, it's a very rational uh, response to our planet. Yeah. So um, it, it, to me, it's, it kind of smacks of um, post-traumatic stress disorder a little bit in that it's uh, not necessarily an, an irrational reaction. It's a rational reaction to an irrational stimulus. Would you, would you yeah, count that? Yeah, that's a or? great way to put it. Uh, I like that. I might borrow that, actually. That's well said. <laughs> what about sequelae from, for those people that suffer from anxiety? What, like We know that depression alone is actually a risk factor for death. What about anxiety? Is there any, things that, any other conditions that anxiety leads to? Uh, it's so many. So, you know, when you, when you sort of dive into the biochemistry of, of anxiety, you begin to realize that just if you just not even just putting the brain aside for a moment and all of the neurotransmitter issues that occur in the brain in somebody who's chronically anxious. 
systemically, we see elevated levels of cortisol, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. And those, if they're persistently elevated over time, will affect physiology, um, and typically not necessarily a good way. Generally speaking, those hormones are associated with an increased basal metabolic rate, and that is going to affect um, cell turnover. So if we have any kind of, for example, um, abnormal cell, say that's maybe precancerous under the influence of stress hormones, we can accelerate the proliferation of that cell. Mm-hmm. Um, even benign conditions, there's been some studies where women who have high stress have been found to have high levels of norepinephrine in their ovarian tissue. And that affects their oocyte development. Number one, they get are more prone to getting ovarian cysts. And number two, it affects their fertility. Um, these hormones oh. affect uh, sperm production, sperm motility, so it you know affects fertility in men as well. You know that that's just a few of many examples looking at this systemically. We all, I think, know the connection between stress, anxiety, and digestive disorders. And I haven't even touched the brain because the the kind of pattern of neurotransmitter secretions and um, the neuronal activity in excitability in the brain is quite affected when people are anxious. And that certainly changes our mood. And I think like you were insinuating with depression can also influence maybe even depression itself, which could ultimately lead to suicidal ideation and things like that. So, you know, there's just no end to the the path that that can be traced back to anxiety. Um, I was very interested when you said you know about uh, those people experiencing anxiety, experiencing anxiety during their cancer treatment, which is totally understandable. Um, but even that mm-hmm. itself has a, a physiological effect on, let's say, metastases like bony metats, uh, metastases. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the actual noradrenaline helps the cells. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if you think about cancer, but really any chronic illness that has any sort of um, significant impact on one's quality of life or length of life, anxiety is often seen um, in conjunction with that. And the anxiety affects the outcome of that disease. Mm. You know, I, um, I I feel so to, to me, it's for clinicians, it's absolutely essential when dealing with any chronic or significant disease to inquire about anxiety in our patients and to address that with as much priority because it's going to change the way that disease expresses itself so it can have prognostic significance. When people are anxious, they are in a bit of a disassociated state and they're less compliant with our recommendations, so it'll affect their prognosis assuming we're making good recommendations, they're perhaps less likely to be adherent to those. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just so, so important to assess every patient for anxiety and to make sure that we're providing support for people. And I want to get into how practitioners can detect anxiety in those patients sitting in front of you um, so that you can address that. But first, who is more likely to suffer from anxiety? Are there certain risk factors uh, yes. So I mentioned women are, at least in surveys, more likely to experience anxiety. Some underlying factors that have been connected with an increased risk for experiencing anxiety are many, um, and then include things like certain dietary deficiencies, particularly of minerals, which are cofactors for a lot of neurotransmitter synthesis, mm-hmm. as well as um, fatty acids are also implicated yeah. there. Um, people who have food intolerances, you know, this has clearly been linked to gluten, but I would not 
keep the list that short. I think assessing for any kind of food intolerances is important because people who have the, that reaction to food are more likely to experience anxiety as a symptom. Mm-hmm. People who have um, blood sugar dysregulation, specifically yeah. episodic hypoglycemia or the so-called reactive hypoglycemia, are very prone to developing anxiety, and that should be a big flag. Um, you know, women who are going through uh, menstruation will can kind of cycle in and out of anxiety, so that should be inquired about. Mm. And um, if that is in fact the case, that probably is linked back to some sort of hormonal imbalance. Um, people who use uh, drugs, recreational drugs frequently are often self-medicating anxiety. Um, on the other hand, um, excessive caffeine intake can increase anxiety. I've actually had a couple of patients where that's the Sadly, because I love coffee myself, but uh, removing coffee was the only thing that was needed to reduce and, in fact, eliminate the anxiety in a couple of people. So that's a really important thing to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any kind of, as, we, as you spoke about, any illness, I mean, any kind of traumatic event, um, diagnosis of a severe illness, loss of a loved one, moving, yeah. anything like that will increase anxiety. Um, and I guess one thing I would say that's pretty interesting is that there's some very fascinating studies that have been done on people who have experienced traumatic childhood and mm-hmm. um, so either been the victim of sexual, physical, yep. emotional abuse. And as they're developing, that abuse has um, epigenetic implications and actually uh, is associated with um, primed response to stressors. And these people as adults it, are much more susceptible to, uh, to anxiety. I mean, significantly so. Yeah. And it's much harder for them to kind of self-redirect away from anxiety because they're actually, in a sense, fighting their own genetic expression, which was entrained from the trauma that they experienced as children. So anybody with a history of trauma uh, should also you know, we should really pay a lot of attention to in terms of anxiety. Yeah, there's 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 two two examples, if you like, that that stick in my mind, and and one is how people say, you know, when I received the diagnosis, and and let's let's take cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, when I received that diagnosis of cancer, my mind went blank. It was just like, you know, a shroud came over, and I was stunned. I couldn't take in any more information, and that's that initial stress reaction, you know, to to the traumatic event. Um, the other thing that, that sticks in my mind is um, those people that may have been displaced and, and, you know, we think displacement from, say, you know, war-torn areas, but some people might have to move mm-hmm. because of factors that were out of their control and that might add to their anxiety mm-hmm. or cause their anxiety. So, you know, you've really got to be on your toes, don't you, to, to key into yeah. and be present with the patient at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, all, those are really good examples. And, and post-traumatic stress disorder is a variant or a sort of a category, if you will, of anxiety. And I think that um, those, you know, it's for, particularly as practitioners paying a lot of attention to um, how people receive a diagnosis, how they're given a diagnosis of a serious disease can be very enlightening for us mm. in understanding you know, what they're experiencing. One thing actually I forgot to mention, but is very interesting for those practitioners who are interested in um, looking at genetic polymorphisms. Uh, There's a very high rate of anxiety in people who have a uh, SNP in the COMP-T enzyme. Um, COMP-T, you know, is involved in a lot of metabolic pathways, including um, catecholamine breakdown. So when uh, COMP-T has a SNP in it, it doesn't work as well. And 
uh, norepinephrine and epinephrine don't get degraded as efficiently. And as a result, they tend to remain elevated in the brain. And that over time will contribute to anxiety. So um, it, it's kind of a, a two-sided coin, though, because yeah. those CompT SNP carriers, because of that hyperexcitability in their brain, are also very um, quick thinkers. They're they're very, they have very quick analytic skills because yep. their brain is kind of working on all cylinders. But at the same time, the dark side of that is that they also tend to experience more anxiety. Uh, now that that's interesting to me because these would more likely be I'm going to quote you know do a, a in a word in quotation marks the the overachievers. But what about people mm-hmm. who are underachievers? And I'm not I'm not talking as opposed to high achievers. I'm just saying uh, um, sedention, if you like, or sedentary lifestyle as a factor for for anxiety, not a, not necessarily as a result of anxiety. In other words, to yeah. accomplish even seemingly menial tasks might give you a sense of achievement. Yeah, and th- I mean there is an association between sedentarism and sort of low. Uh, engagement um, with anxiety, but it's more associated with depression. You know, right. biochemically, anxiety and depression are, overlap a lot. Yeah. So um, it's not it's not necessarily a it's not a bad habit to sort of think of them together. Mm-hmm. But but they they do have some differences. Yeah. And so, how would somebody know if they have anxiety? I mean, get, let's go through the symptomatology and. You know, we're talking about depression, the the differential diagnosis between that and depression. Well, so really what we're seeing as general practitioners is what's categorized as generalized anxiety disorder or GAD. And this is essentially defined as a sense of worry in the absence of a real threat. Um, And so this is characterized by some key features. Number one, it's sort of a constant sense of worry or apprehension um, sort of that sense of impending doom. Mm. Um, it's also frequently characterized by insomnia, and people have a really hard time relaxing. So mm. they have a very difficult time just, ah, yeah, everything's good, I'm safe kind of feeling. Yeah. That, that's sort of definitionally what generalized anxiety disorder is. And to be technically classified as such, though that triad of, of symptomatology or some degree of that needs to be present for at least six months. Now, sometimes overlaid on that or as a part of that, but this is not necessarily present when people have anxiety is our panic disorders. And these are um, sudden attacks of fear, um, you know, very acute impending doom, a feeling of impending doom. Um, these often send people to the you know emergency room because they think they're having a heart attack, yeah. they yeah. get chest pain, they have shortness of breath, they're sweating. Um, and those affect quite a number of people with anxiety disorder, although not all people with anxiety disorder have panic attacks. So um, just to kind of keep that in mind. And then, you know, even um, a couple of other, in addition to post-traumatic stress disorder that we mentioned, which is that sort of receiving a traumatic event and then having other ordinary events trigger flashbacks to that event. That's an expression of anxiety. Two others that are also expressions of anxiety are phobias. Um, so these are, you know, technically defined as unjustified fears. Um, although the people who have the phobia won't tell you that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> my wife are, will not you know, say that phobia. her fear of snakes is unjustified. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but um, when people have significant phobias and they those phobias find their way into their daily life, that's actually an expression yeah. of anxiety. 
And then the other one is obsessive compulsive disorder. And, and these are just, um, you know, persistent thoughts. That's the obsession part, which which actually are causing anxiety so that the person sort of self-relieves that anxiety through ritualistic actions. And that's the compulsion part. Um, and that's actually more common than we might think. Um, and that is an expression of anxiety as well. So I think anything, any kind of uh, triad of, of these, any presentation of these symptoms would should uh, direct somebody to assess for anxiety. And there's some great tools online that um, people can download. There's anxiety questionnaires, in fact, yeah. um, which uh, w- one of the most common one is called the Hamilton Anxiety Scale. Mm-hmm. And there's another one called State Trait Anxiety Inventory. And these are uh, essentially questionnaires that you can print off of the internet and then you can just give them to your patient and they can fill them out and then it's a very easy scoring system. Um, Hamilton Anxiety Scale, which is the one that I use the most, is like a 14-question survey and people just answer these questions, all of which have been very well validated and then you get a score and um, you can determine if if somebody has mild, moderate, or severe anxiety. Mm -hmm. Those, I think, are useful actually because if you do that kind of semi-objective um, assessment of anxiety, you can come back to it and have people repeat it later to help them see their own progress because sometimes they lose that perspective. Okay, so you have anxiety. What do you do? What, what right now should somebody do if they, they're feeling this, this anxiousness within their body? You know what? The first thing I would actually recommend for somebody is that in addition to their integrative practitioner that they um, that that they're referred to a very good therapist yeah. for some cognitive behavioral therapy. Not only is um, that type of counseling effective for relieving the anxiety, but at the very least, it gives people tools to modify their um, behaviors, their perceptions, their distortions, so that they can they have a chance to to change their reactions. So that it, it takes something that's maybe in the subconscious or unconscious and moves it into the conscious mm-hmm. mind, which is a really important self um, strategy going forward. Because even if you get somebody on the right nutrients, the right herbs, et cetera, there's still going to be triggers for them. And particularly if they have epigenetic situations that are from childhood and so forth. So getting the, these coping strategies is, is, I think, absolutely essential to the management of anxiety. And in addition to that, um, I think that, you know, we can't stop there and we need to really think through some, uh, some specific therapy. So I'm not really going to, I don't know if you want me to go into conventional management, but there's lots of, uh, medications that are used. The benzodiazepines, the GABA agonists are kind of the most common grouping Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, SSRIs or serotonin receptor uptake inhibitors. These are, uh, somewhat effective for people. They can be quite effective. Um, I think that might be sort of a separate podcast to talk about if somebody's on these medications, how can we support them to, you know, manage them, to maybe wean off of them eventually. Um, but, the, but there is that whole approach, which for some people is appropriate yeah. and can really help. Yeah. Um, if somebody doesn't want to go the conventional route, then I think we're into the land of integrative therapy. And boy, we have a lot to offer folks in this regard. 
and uh, so much. I don't even know where to start. Where would you like to start? <laughs> well, well, let's start with diet and exercise and, and sleep because you know, these are the basic things, the basic tenets of life, but we just we don't give them enough honour, if you like, in our, in our 21st century living, do we? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, good. So let's start with exercise. So um, exercise definitely reduces anxiety. There's been some studies that have shown that exercise is as effective as conventional anxiolytics um, in some studies. So that says a lot. Um, exercise is clearly been demonstrated to reduce anxiety in all types of people. So mm. menopausal women, elderly people, uh, you know, males, um, people with intellectual disabilities. I mean, any kind of group you could imagine yep. that um, might have anxiety is most likely been studied to see what exercise does and it improves their anxiety. So clearly a must-do strategy. A little clinical pearl that I'll throw in there, um, which is if people are getting a panic attack, they're, and usually when people have a panic attack, there's uh, they know it's about to happen like maybe five, ten seconds before it actually full-blown starts in. And if they can recognize that at that in that five-second window and hit the floor and start doing some push-ups, or uh -huh. some really pretty strenuous exercise, it can actually avert the panic attack in some people. Okay. So instead of breathing into that paper bag, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> just getting a really intense exercise for a few minutes uh, or a minute less um, can, can be a very useful yeah. strategy. It's a nice little thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, so diet, there's actually the best studies on diet have come out of Australia and uh, looking at the relationship between diet and mood disorders and what seems to be the case, and this is the work of um, uh, Professor Jacka and at the University of Melbourne. Pro Associate Professor Felice Jacka. She's done some really good work, hasn't she? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. She, I just, I'm just so happy to see her working on this topic. But, you know, her work has, has found that there's a pretty good correlation between eating a healthy diet, one that we would consider healthy. So lots of whole foods, uh, minimal refined carbohydrates, um, you know, good quality proteins with lower uh, incidence of depression and anxiety. And on the converse side, she's also found a correlation between the typical Western diet, high processed refined foods, high fried foods, sugars, alcohol, et cetera, with increased depression and anxiety. Now that's interesting and important, but it doesn't really tell us about cause or effect, you know, because is the mood causing people to eat poorly or is the eating poorly causing the mood disorder? Yeah. Um, there was one study that I am aware of, and this is the only one that I've ever seen, and hopefully there's more that I just don't know about, but uh, this was actually a randomized control trial. It was only, it was a cross, uh, it was a trial that was only conducted for two weeks. Mm. So it was a very short-term trial, which which is probably somewhat problematic. But um, they looked at 39 adults, they measured their anxiety and their mood, and then they um, randomized them to three different diets. One, they called the omnivore group. So this was a group that had meat and poultry at least once a day. Then they had another group, which was, they called the fish group. And this was uh, no meat, no poultry, but three to four servings of fish a week. And then the third group was vegetarian, obviously no animal products, although they did allow dairy. And then they looked at the mood scores and what happened after two weeks. And what they found was that only the only group that had a change was in the vegetarian diet group. And in the vegetarian group, the anxiety score reduced by uh, about half, and um, 
that was on two different measures. Mm. So that kind of indicates that that there's something about either not eating animal foods or about eating more vegetables that changes our mood potentially. So, hmm. you know, I think I think there's something there. And frankly, this is a rather uninvestigated um, area. Yeah, yeah that's so, really interesting. Um, and the only other dietary thing I'll just mention again is caffeine. You know, there's there's really a tall, a, a very strong association with caffeine and anxiety. Um, if people have chronic anxiety, it's well worth uh, trying a period of elimination to see what happens with their anxiety. It's not always the case. Some people can have anxiety. They take coffee or tea away and they still have anxiety and they add it back. Their anxiety doesn't get worse. So it's not always an aggravant, but when it is, it can be pretty amazing. <laughs> so so that might be a, a, a trick, if you like, or a, a little tip for practitioners to do is to potentially withdraw coffee or tea or you know, certainly Coca-Cola and, and, and other you know soft drinks and things like that and high sugar. But if you can do the, the, these caffeine stimulants, um, withdraw those for, say, a week and see if they respond to that. Mm-hmm. And if not, well, it wasn't for them. Is that right? Yep, that, that's actually really good. And, you know, one of the things that can happen in people who are not uh, doing very well metabolizing their caffeine is they can have insomnia. And you mentioned sleep, and it's true that when people don't sleep very well, they tend to be more anxious. Yep. It's also, again, an association. So yeah. anxiety causes poor sleep, poor sleep causes anxiety. So you just got to break that cycle somewhere. Um and on that note, you know, just improving sleep hygiene to make sure people are, you're maximizing people's ability to sleep. If if maybe if a sleep study hasn't been done, referring them out for a sleep study to make sure they don't have sleep apnea. Um, if they do have sleep apnea and they're not oxygenating their brain very well when they're sleeping, then they will most definitely have mood disorders mm, when mm-hmm. they uh, wake up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, what other treatments do we use? Like you mentioned a few there, but um, you mentioned minerals earlier on and, and certain vitamins. But can we go into specific treatments that you use? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, there's so many. I'm a little overwhelmed at the moment, but yeah, uh, your categorization helps. So let, let's start with just minerals and vitamins. Um, so there's um, there's some brain neurochemistry that's helpful to mm-hmm. remind ourselves about one being the serotonin pathway. So tryptophan is the precursor to 5-hydroxytryptophan and then to serotonin, and a lot of anxiety is characterized by serotonin deficiency. Those That pathway requires certain minerals, and uh, the, the most important one of, of those minerals is magnesium. Yeah. So magnesium deficiency is often implicated in serotonin deficiency. So that that's one of the first minerals that I will consider in somebody who has anxiety. Um, next on my list is vitamin B6. Uh, that's also a, a cofactor in going from tryptophan to 5-HTP and again to serotonin. And again, can be deficient in people, particularly those who are also under a lot of stress because they're kind of burning through their bees. Mm. Um, and so those would be sort of my top two, magnesium and B6. And then there's, you know, just some other cofactors to keep in mind, um, iron, calcium, zinc, vitamin C, folic acid. These are also required in that pathway, which, so there's so many that kind of leads us to just maybe trying a multivitamin or multimineral complex. Yeah. And in fact, that's been shown to, in various studies to reduce anxiety when people are 
randomized to get a multivitamin or a placebo. Um, the anxiety scores significantly decline in the multivitamin group, not in the placebo. That's also been shown in supplementing magnesium B6 together or separately. Um, so, that, you know, either one, probably in more severe, moderate to severe cases of anxiety, I would probably use a multi-mineral multivitamin, obviously really high quality, mm-hmm. bioavailable forms of the uh, minerals and, and, you know, activated forms of the B vitamins. And on top of that, I would prescribe extra magnesium and maybe extra B6. There's often not very much B6 in the multi. Yeah, we have to go quite high with B6. I think there was some paranoia. Um, And, and, you know, I'm talking responsible dosing, but but you can use the the tens, even scores of uh, of milligrams of B6 and uh, without ill effect. Yeah. Lise, you mentioned nutrients earlier. What sort of other nutrients do you use? Yeah, so the, there's some really fantastically um, very effective nutrients that one should consider. Um, one is omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fatty acids most definitely reduce anxiety and can reduce anxiety fairly significantly. The challenge with this is that they take a while to work because they're changing the fluidity of membranes in our brain they're altering inflammation patterns in our brain, and that doesn't happen overnight. Mm. Most people with anxiety want to get it resolved tomorrow, so you have to use other things concurrent with this. But in about six weeks to several months, these omega-3 fatty acids really can change brain chemistry and significantly reduce anxiety. And that's been shown in several studies and that the biomarkers of the reduced inflammation have been shown as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a must. Um Another really important nutrient that I use a lot in people with anxiety is phosphatidylserine. Ah, uh, yes. So phosphatidylserine blunts the stress response, right? So if in response to stress, we get this big spike of adrenal corticotropin hormone in the brain. And that in the brain, I'm not even talking systemically now, but in the brain, that ACTH uh, can trigger an anxiety, it sort of stimulates the amygdala and it sort of processes an, an anxious, anxious event or mm. an anxious state in mm. response to whatever the stimulus was. So people who are taking phosphatidylserine have a much much blunted ACTH response in, to a stressor. So it, it literally changes our brain chemistry and it moves the brain away from a stress-anxious response. Mm. Um, it's pretty amazing, actually, When if you haven't tried it for anxiety, um, I would certainly recommend it because the other nice thing about phosphatidylserine is that there have been some studies where they've looked at various doses, yep. and they've looked at doses ranging from 400 milligrams all the way up to, I think, 1,200, 1,600 milligrams, and actually in those studies, the 400 and 800 milligram dose are, are as effective, in fact, even maybe more effective than the higher dose. So, mm. Um, just 400 milligrams a day is a great way to, to, to really start to change that stress response. So this would be particularly useful for people who have anxiety that gets stimulated by stressors. Yeah. Um, can be really, really useful. And do you need to stay on that 400 milligrams or do you have like a loading dose for a little while and go off onto a lower dose as a maintenance? You know, I think 400 is pretty much the lowest dose that I ever use. So right. uh, you could load with higher than that, like maybe 800 milligrams, and then drop down to to 400. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one I was going to mention is probiotics. Um, you know, there's lots and lots of, of interesting data now coming out about the microbiome, but it's very clear that um, when people receive a probiotic supplement, 
And there's been a couple of studies on this, and usually there's a lactobacillus and a bifidobacterium involved. Um, they have less anxiety. So I think, mm. you know, as we know, there's a big connection between the, the gut and the brain, and yeah. this is one of, one of those pathways for that connection. That's really interesting. We, you know, we know that you know, ninety to ninety-five percent of our serotonin is actually made in our gut, but as yeah, a, exactly. using probiotics as a therapy, I'd never sort of made that link. Wow. I don't ever rely on it by itself. I should just add, but um, certainly, as there's so many other benefits to probiotics, it just makes sense to throw it in the mix. Mm. You mentioned the anti-inflammatory actions of the omega three, especially fatty acids. Um, before and and to me it just smacks that there's an inflammatory component of anxiety like there is in depression that there seems to be more and more coming out about this now do you see that these people are generally you know inflamed in some way um, what I'm talking about here is you know a link to other conditions that might um, have an inflammatory component Yes, I think that there is a link between. That's why I think people, for example, with food intolerances often right. have anxiety because the inflammation in yep. their gut is yep. through the cytokines that are getting secreted and getting into the brain, inflaming the brain. I mean, there's really very little doubt in my mind at this point that depression is really an inflammatory disorder of the brain. Mm. Um, there's a lot of very interesting things that happen when the brain's inflamed um, that can, can lead to anxiety. There's, you know, microglial activation and those are like the cleanup resident immune cells that hang on to neurons and clean things up but when they're chronically activated they they over recruit um, t-cells into the brain and these t-cells load up into the brain and they're just constantly reactive and they actually create an immune mediated inflammation which is destructive right. so you start to destroy neurons neuronal connections and um, the, the literally the met the processing of the brain changes as a result. Yeah. We also know that uh, the, the kind of the central organ of anxiety is the amygdala, sort of the brain's alarm system, and that is very susceptible to oxidative stress, inflammatory stress. So when that occurs in the brain, the amygdala starts to fire off a little bit too much too often. Um, so there's, there's some interesting mechanisms behind it. But yeah, to answer your question... For sure, inflammation systemically will ultimately get translated into the brain. Lastly, herbs, and there are some beautiful herbs. You know, one of my favourites is um, from great work done by um, Dr. Jerome Saras again down in Melbourne, and that's on the herb kava. Uh, but there are so many other herbs. Um, tell me what you use. So many, <laughs> so many. Yeah, so kava, I love. I agree. I mean, boy. Um, yeah, and his work is great. Uh, clearly, benefit to kava over placebo in studies, and you know, really used appropriately and with good quality uh, extracts. Mm. You know, the c concerns that have been voiced around liver and all that is just really not a concern. Um, so that that's a go-to for sure. It has a nice sedative effect, so it's great dosed at night uh, as well. Um, so another kind of oh boy, there's so many, but okay. So go-to for me is lavender. Mm -hmm. um, I, there's been a tremendous amount of research on lavender, especially the essential oil extract of lavender. Um, out of Germany, there's there's quite a number of studies. In fact, over 400 randomized clinical trials have been done on lavender and anxiety specifically. Wow. Which is a lot of clinical trials. Um, and uh, so in Germany, there, there's a preparation that's, that's 
a capsule, and it's basically a, an extract of a lavender essential oil, which is which has been well studied and other forms of lavender have also been studied. There's lavender inhalation, uh, just getting dried lavender flowers, making a little lavender pillow and sleeping with that has been shown to be effective using lavender essential oil topically. Um, There's companies that make um, aromatherapy inhalant Mm -hmm. and those have been studied to be effective. So really any kind of lavender that gets those volatile oils into the body, um, will be quite effective. And what's unique about lavender is that in these studies, it's been shown to be better than placebo, which actually says a lot in anxiety studies because placebos are pretty effective. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in addition, it's better than comparable anxiolytic drugs. So like the benzodiazepine type uh, drugs, when studied against those, it tends to be uh, effective in a greater number of people. Mm. And, um, the effect in those people is greater. So it's sort of better in two ways. And most of the studies on lavender show a responder response rate of about 75%. And that's exactly what I see in my clinical practice. I can pretty much rely on the fact that three out of every four people that I give lavender extract to are going to respond with less anxiety. Wow. Um, so that makes it really reliable. Yeah, and absolutely. So kind of one of my, my go-to herbs. Um, let's see, some other favorites of mine for anxiety. Another one I like a lot is ashwagandha or Wythania somnifera. Uh, yes. yes. And um, I think this one's pretty unique because um, this actually increases dopamine receptors in the brain. And in doing that, it counters the anxiety producing effects of norepinephrine in the brain. So this is particularly good, again, for somebody under chronic stress. And with anxiety as a response or as a result, um, we know ashwagandha is an adaptogen, so it kind of works on that stress response at the same time. And uh, it's also been studied in some <clears throat> clinical trials and is uh, effective in the vast majority of people who take it and uh, more effective than placebo. Mm-hmm. Um, and this can be dosed with, you know, just a standardized extract a couple times a day, you know, so you're getting about a gram of the standardized extract a day or can be dosed so that you give most of it at night because it has a bit of a sedative property, but this works great, especially for kind of that, you know, person who's multitasking, is overwhelmed by their life and is really anxious about all the things they can't get done. Lithania, perfect. Yeah. Perfect and adaptogen too, to support uh, adrenal glands. Do you find that uh, patients are often adrenally exhausted when they're suffering anxiety, or do you mm-hmm. find that it's more of an acute phase response? You know, that well, um, adrenally exhaustion is kind of a difficult term for me. What I find is that most people who have chronic anxiety have hypercortisolemia. Mm-hmm. But, so they've kind of flipped their circadian, they've lost their circadian rhythmicity. Yep. And so that their cortisol is flattened at a high level. So high, but less cycling, less diurnal variation. Yes. Exactly. So do you find then, I'm just thinking here, do you find that there might be a link with anxiety and conditions like polycystic ovarian syndrome? There is, in fact, a link between um, anxiety and and PCOS and that at least um, by one mechanism is clearly the result of these anxiety-produced compounds, the norepinephrine, the cortisols, finding their way into the ovaries and affecting physiology there, increasing cyst production. Um, you know, probably there's a bit of that pregnenolone uh, 
the pregnenolone being a precursor for both uh, testosterone and cortisol, there's mm-hmm. a bit of a steal going on, which you would think yep. would be kind of a good thing because that would reduce testosterone, but then there's some comp- compensatory mechanisms that kick in. So yeah, stress, bottom line, a definite must in treating PCOS. And what about, you know, the use and, and I'd say the judicial use um, or the, the judicial choice of um, the ginsengs? Do you ever use like American ginseng over Korean ginseng or Siberian ginseng or do you find these too stimulating with an anxiety disorder? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think um, the ginsengs are appropriate for some people with anxiety, particularly if you're trying to get at that abnormal or altered circadian rhythm. I don't tend to rely on panics. I think that is too stimulating. So I would go more towards the so-called cooling ginsengs, like the panicked quincopolius, which is the American ginseng, or even the Siberian ginseng, Eleutherococcus, benthicosis. I think those would be a little bit safer. But, But I would be a little judicious in that and be kind of start them slow and make sure I'm starting just that so that I know if somebody aggravated in terms of their anxiety, I can trace it back to that particular herb because um, it's a little touch and go with, with some folks. Yeah. And do you ever, do you find that there are some herbs that you just steer away from or that you find are more, appro- more appropriate if they have a depression component rather than just anxiety? So I guess I would say any herb that has a lot of um, methylxanthine in it, I would stay away from. So the you know, certainly the caffeine-containing herbs and the, um, uh, forgotten the name of the one that's used as stimulant from South America. Guarana. Yeah, thank you. Um, that one, those kind of things I would stay away from. Um, and, you know, probably, like I said, I'd be somewhat cautious with ginsengs, um, with rhodiola, although that's been shown to be effective in some people for anxiety, more effective than people with depression. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it can be a bit, you know, have that stimulating edge to it. Bacopa, same thing. So those would be ones I'd be a little bit cautious about. I tend to use more of the, the herbs that have a bit of a sedative action because the sedation from an herbal perspective is just a, a strong anti-anxiety response in a way. Mm. So most of the herbs that are so-called sedatives, you can dose at a lesser amount and get an anxiolytic which is why there's so many. I mean, that include, now we've got valerian and chamomile and lemon balm and even green tea and magnolia. I mean, there's just, you know, you can count on all your fingers and toes. There's lots of herbs to choose from. Um, you mentioned green tea there, and I know that L-theanine is a bit of a favorite of yours. Have you, it do is you, a favorite of mine, yes. Tell me about its use. Yeah, so L-theanine as an anxiolytic is is great. So just a little bit of a note. There is L-theanine in green tea, but there's such a small amount that you would have to drink copious amounts of green tea to get enough L-theanine. So I tend to use L-theanine as a separate extract if I'm really going for that. Um, But L-theanine is really wonderful, and it's um, been shown to reduce um, anxiety in it it changes brain wave patterning so that it increases alpha waves, which are what you see when people are meditating or like um, there's some equipment that people can use now, alpha stim mm. type of equipment, which also induces or overlays alpha waves in the brain. And that can reduce anxiety because when the brain has a lot of alpha wave activity going on, it tends to be, you tend to feel calm yet 
alert. So you're sort of in this relaxed state of alertness. And uh, L-theanine will help the brain achieve more of that. Um, And that's been demonstrated in clinical trials, actually comparable with uh, something like alprazolam, which is known in the States as Xanax. Yeah. Um, And even in adolescence, there was an interesting study that looked at um, boys with um, attention deficit or hyperactivity disorder and they had some sleep disturbances and they were randomized to get L-theanine or placebo. And these boys were given 400 milligrams of L-theanine at bedtime. And there was a significant uh, improvement in their ability to fall asleep more quickly mm-hmm. and then to stay asleep longer. So, And as a result, their anxiety was less. Now, I know we're jumping back in time a little bit, but um, going back to herbs, um, I remember you telling me a story about the practical clinical use um, of lavender oil capsules. What happens mm-hmm. when you take them initially? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, these lavender oil capsules have an, a very unique side effect. So the capsules release um, in the upper digestive system, and typically after people take them, they get what, what's called a lavender burp. And so they sort of burp up this very intense lavender smell, which um, I find quite pleasant when I take lavender, but some people are really bothered by that. Yeah. Um, so if that happens, it helps if people take it with food. It also helps if they t- they freeze the capsules first mm-hmm. and they take the capsule frozen because it kind of creates a little bit of a time release effect. Um, and just some people just can't deal with that lavender burp and they just can't take it. But that's the minority. Most people, you know, just get used to it and happens once and then doesn't really happen uh, ever again at that day. So it's fine. The the 80 milligram size lavender extract that's manufactured in Germany, um, one a day is often all that people need. And sometimes if people take the one in the morning, their anxiety is much better. And then they start starts to resurface again towards the end of the day. They may need to redose it in the end of the day um, instead of doing some other anxiety reducing behavior like drinking alcohol or, you know, doing recreational drugs or something like that. So it can help in that way too. Mm. And um, so I might add that, so there's research on lavender, the herb, lavender, the essential oil, and then there's this German phytopharmaceutical product um, that, uh, what's it called? Sorry. It's by Schwaber, isn't it? Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And what was its name? I know it's a... a Uh, Lavella. Or actually, it's also known as, um, it has its own uh, chemical name, which I can tell you in a second. It is WS-1265. Right. That's the extract code, if you like. Mm-hmm. WS-1265. And what's it called in America? It, well, it's either Stilexin, yep. um, which is kind of the trademarked ingredient name, or it's packaged as Lavella. And... Just going back again to what you mentioned before about alpha waves, I find that really interesting because um, even music can help people to get into alpha waves. Like, for instance, Packle Bell's Cannon mm. um, has a, mm-hmm. this cycling of, eight, I think it's 8 to 14 cycles per second or something, and that uh, has a greater uh, chance of moving somebody into alpha waves. Is there any other music or any other therapy like that that you institute with your patients? Um, you know, I don't know that I recommend a specific kind of music, but that makes a lot of sense. I recall, and I can't recall the details of it at the moment, but I know there's been some studies on drumming um, ah. as, a, as a way to reduce anxiety. Yeah. 
Um, well, that would also help with exercise and, as well. Yeah, that's about all that comes to mind. <laughs> Leeds, we've gone through some nutrients, some herbs, some phytonutrients um, um, and some herbs. Tell me, if somebody presents to you and you detect anxiety right now in them, tell me a sort of uh, textbook program that you might institute for them. Mm-hmm. So assuming I've assessed them, so I would you know, do the HAMA um, uh, score to kind of get a numerical value on it for future reference and also to confirm what they're currently experiencing, I would refer them to a cognitive behavioral therapist so that they can employ those techniques. Yep. And in addition to working with fun, you know, foundational diet, exercise, sleep, hygiene, uh, I would initiate a, a, a program of supplementation to support their mood. So I, I think I talked about some of the things that I would use for example, like a protocol for me might be um, using magnesium. I probably would use magnesium glycinate because glycine also has anxiolytic effects. And I would probably prescribe around 300 milligrams a day, mostly at night. Um, I would use omega-3 fatty acids for that long-term effect, you know, probably two grams a day. Um, I would think about providing some either combination product or individual Herbal supplementation, I might consider things like ashwagandha, uh, magnolia, uh, lavender extract, curcumin as theracumin specifically to get across that blood-brain barrier, deal with inflammation there. Um, I would probably think about L-theanine in the evening, and um, I would, you know, give that a go and expect that they would notice some changes, assuming they're fully compliant um, with some of those, they're fairly fast acting, like the lavender essential extract is very quick acting. Um, magnesium can be very quick. So I would probably expect them to feel some improvement and then the placebo effect is super strong yeah. in anxiety. So yeah. they should notice some improvement within the first week. Um, and I would probably see them back in a couple of weeks to reassess, make sure everything's going well, but really not expect the full impact of these therapies to take place uh, for three, four weeks. So about a month after that, I would see them, we have them reassess their anxiety and then tweak the program accordingly. Oh, and I didn't mention multivitamin, but that would be in there too. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant words from a brilliant practitioner. Thank you so much for taking us through that, Lise. I, I really respect what you do because I know that you deal with, you know, quite complex and serious dis, um, disorders on a day-to-day basis and anxiety being a component of, of, of that in, in many of these cases. So I thank you for taking our listeners through those uh, practical tips. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for letting me letting me talk about it. I really, just as my final word, I would encourage practitioners again to really assess their patients for anxiety because, you know, I think our goal is not just to get rid of disease, but is to help people reestablish a sense of exuberant living, full-on joyful living, and they can't do that if they're anxious. So I think we owe it to our patients actually to assess for and help them resolve anxiety. Brilliantly said, Lise. And I'll just add that there's some important links which I'll put up on our FX Medicine website for both those patients who might be experiencing anxiety and also for those practitioners treating patients with anxiety. That's at fxmedicine.com.au. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us 
through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.